pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Recently, I had lunch with uh, a guy, a friend of mine, uh, part of our church family, who uh, okayed me to recount this conversation with you. I'll leave out all the embarrassing personal details of his life. No, I'm kidding. Um, But we got together in large part uh, because he was experiencing some frustration in his life and particularly in his walk with God. And I said, well, let's get together and talk about that. And kind of to make a long story short, um, what he talked about was feeling frustration because he wanted to pursue his relationship with Jesus and and particularly in in his context, um, the extent to which he really um, absorbed God and his word in the Bible. He wanted to pursue that more, uh, felt like he should, but he found himself consistently failing to follow through on something that a big part of him really desired and really wanted to do. Now, as we talked, it became fairly quickly clear to me that he already knew the benefits of Bible study. Uh, He already understood what a positive difference uh, could be made in his own life and his own relationship with God if he was pursuing God in his word the way he was desiring to. And he was fully well aware of the negative impacts of not doing so. He could actually articulate all of that very clearly. He didn't really need any of that to be explained, nor did he need to be convinced of any of it. He, he understood it, and he absolutely believed it was all true. He could, he could have articulated those things probably even more clearly than I could. So... Here we were, yet he still found himself, despite knowing all this stuff, somewhat stuck, spiritually speaking, in his walk with God. Just just felt stuck and was getting very frustrated with it. And I, I share that story in part because I really don't think he's alone. Can you relate to his situation? The details from person to person are often somewhat different, perhaps even fairly different, but the issue is much the same for anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time. We can often identify places where you feel like your, your relationship with God is somewhat stalled out for one reason or another. Like if you had to look back on the last year or two years, or even more of your life, could you identify substantial changes and growth in your relationship with God? Or would you be a little hard-pressed to answer that question? I love God, maybe I'm doing all the things I know I'm supposed to do, but how has God changed me in the last couple years? Let me get back to you on that one. Sometimes we can kind of end up looking back and going, "I I don't know if I'm going anywhere at this point. He was stuck. And the question is, when you're stuck, how do you get unstuck? And that's what I talked with uh, my lunch buddy about that day, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. This is a a little bit of a different couple of sermons for us. We're in the midst of a short three-part sermon series. We started last Sunday. We're going to continue this morning and then end next week to kind of kick off the year. And 
I say it's a little bit different if you're newer to Harvest. It's a little bit different than the way that we normally teach the Bible. Uh, Our sermon will still be biblical this morning, of course, and applicable, but it's gonna be a little bit more oriented toward who we are and, and kind of philosophically and strategically, how do we go there as a church? Because this is the beginning of a year, and that's a great time, the beginning of kind of a school year, coming out of the summer and getting into our regular routines. That's a great time to kind of pull our heads up, so to speak, and take a look at the horizon. And remember, who has God called us to be, and how are we pursuing that calling as a Harvest Community Church, specifically us, this year? This is a vision sermon series, and that's what we're talking about this morning. When Jesus said, follow me, how do we answer that call? And we need to take a look at that periodically uh, because uh, there's a a phrase that, that I love. It's kind of a proverb. I have no idea where it came from. Somebody told me once it was an old German proverb. I have no idea if that's true, but it goes like this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, that's not only catchy. That's one of those phrases that when you step back and think about it, there's a lot of truth to that. Like the main thing in life is really just to make sure that the main thing stays the main thing. And why is that such a big deal? Because we so easily lose sight of who we are and where we're going. That's true of anybody, and it is also true of Christians, and it's true of churches. It's so easy to go through a summer like we've just been through and come to the fall and re-engage with whatever our normal schedule is in the fall. We, we head back to school. Uh, we get involved in the home routines that we picked up again from last spring. We, we go to work and then the vacations are kind of over and we're kind of back into the normal. A lot of that kind of stuff starts taking place this time of year. And that can be a good thing to kind of get back in our routines. There's an element where I really enjoy this time of year to sort of get back at the normalcy of life. And yet the transition back to whatever's normal this year can be so busy and so full. And then life itself can be so packed to the gills that if we're honest, even if we're pretty satisfied with our lives and even if we're really happy with our schedules, we could go for weeks or even months without ever once thinking intentionally or deliberately about why God has put me on this earth and whether all of my schedule and routine is really serving the purposes of my Lord the way that he would have me. When Jesus said, follow me, what did he mean and am I answering that call? So the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing because it's so easy to lose sight of it, which raises the obvious question. Church, what's the main thing, (laughs) right? And fortunately, by the grace of God, that question's very easy to answer when you open up your Bible. So we've started this three-week sermon series looking at the main thing. We started last week in John 15, where Jesus said the bottom line is the main thing, the main thing is that we bring glory to God. That's what we were created for. My life exists to magnify Christ, to see that God receives the glory and the attention and the honor that he is due. That's why I'm here. Very straightforward answer. The Bible couldn't be more clear about that from cover to cover. Okay, but that's still kind of a big picture answer. Let's break that down a little bit. And that's what our Lord did for us, and we saw this last Sunday in John 15, particularly in verse 8, where he says, In this is my Father glorified, that you, Christians, bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so we saw last Sunday, the main thing is that I, in the words of Jesus, be a fruitful disciple. That's what my life is about. That's what your life is about. That's why this church is here. 
But that too needs to be unpacked a little bit. And so we're taking three Sundays to do that. Last week we saw that, well, what does it mean to be a fruitful disciple? Well, it means to be, uh, to abide in the vine, to use Jesus' words from John 15. And we talked about what that really means is to stay connected to Jesus. And so we looked at several ways we get disconnected with Jesus and several ways that we should stay connected to Jesus from within that passage. That was last Sunday. Now this week we're also going to talk about Um, Being a fruitful disciple means growing into maturity. That's our focus this morning. And then next week, we'll round it out by looking at the fact that fruitful disciples uh, make other disciples. We'll take a look at that next week. So this morning, what it means to be a fruitful disciple is that we grow into maturity. You know, we're throwing around this word um, disciple and, and, and discipleship as if those are common words that everybody understands the definitions to. And if you are a person who's been around churches and you're familiar with the Bible, especially the Gospels, the word disciple is used a lot. And so it does kind of start to sound familiar when you've been around churchy circles. But discipleship is kind of a churchy word. Uh, You don't hear people out on the street using the word disciple anymore. People just don't talk that way in our modern day. Now they did in first century Palestine when the Gospels were written. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28 here in a moment, another one of the Gospels. Disciple was a much more common word. People understood what it meant. Jesus had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. A whole lot of rabbis, the Jewish religious teachers, would make a practice of having disciples, people who would attach themselves to that teacher and and follow him and learn all of his teachings and seek to embody his teachings the way that he did. It was almost an apprenticeship type of relationship. And so that was a much more common thing back then. And we pick up that word discipleship from the Bible, and it's a good word. We should continue to use it. But because it's not as familiar to us, it's probably worth making sure we understand what we're talking about. So I want to do two things this morning, really. This is where we're kind of headed. We're going to talk about what discipleship is. We want to be a fruitful disciple that grows into maturity. We just want to be really clear about what that growth process looks like from Scripture. That's the first thing we're going to try to quickly sketch this morning. The second thing we want to talk about on a more practical and experiential level is what are the dangers of getting stuck along that journey and how do we make sure that we get unstuck and continue to bear fruit, thus glorify God, which is the main thing. So that's where we're headed this morning. What is the process of growth and how do we get stuck and how do we get unstuck? What is the discipleship process? We want to start there. And I want us to see it uh, from Matthew chapter 28, which Jerry read for us earlier, uh, verses 19 and 20, uh, known, very familiar passage of scripture known as the Great Commission. And while you're turning your Bibles there, Matthew chapter 28, it's the very end of the gospel of Matthew. Jesus lays out in this not only the command, but also the steps of the process. And I want us to see that from scripture. Just before we do, let me talk briefly about what I think discipleship isn't before we talk about what it is. And, And I'm only doing this because in churches, we can tend to use this word a lot, and, and most of us have at least some church background, either in this church or other churches, and so you've probably heard this word disciple or discipleship, and it gets used in certain contexts, and we, we have kind of a vague idea of what it's about, and, and that idea is probably right, but it's kind of vague, and one thing I've noticed is that different people and sometimes even different pastors use the word different ways. So let's start by getting as as best we can on the page of how Jesus uses this word. First of all, what discipleship isn't? Let me quickly share with you four things. Discipleship is not, first of all, um, what I would call a separate partner to evangelism or sharing the gospel with somebody who's not a Christian. 
a lot of churches probably inadvertently reinforce this idea with the language they use. I've reinforced this idea many times over the years without even realizing it, and I'm trying to repent of that and be consistent in how I use the word. We talk about, for example, evangelism and discipleship as two partners that go hand in hand. Now, right away, before I even say anything else, what have I just implied about those two things? They're different, right? They're different. Whatever they are, evangelism is one thing and discipleship is something else. They may be interconnected, but they are not the same thing. And often you can go to churches nowadays that, especially larger ones that have multiple staff people, and you will find uh, somebody on the pastoral staff who has a title that goes something like pastor of discipleship or pastor of discipling ministries. And you go, oh, well, that's interesting. What is his job description? He's obviously in charge of all the discipleship. And if you look at his job description, you'll find that he's the guy who's in charge of all the like adult classes in the church. Or maybe he's the guy that's in charge of the, the home Bible study groups where people come around the Bible together and, and, and talk about how they grow in the Lord. And so we say, oh, well, that's discipleship. But he's not in charge of the Sunday morning worship service or the preaching, usually. He's not in charge of the missions program of the church or the local outreach and evangelism programs, usually. And so without realizing it, sometimes we reinforce this idea that whatever discipleship is, it's different than evangelism or worship or some of these other things. I don't think that's the case. We'll explain that in a minute. Two others, real quick. Uh, actually, I have three, but these next two are very closely related. The more I've talked to different people and Christians about this word discipleship, the more I realize some people have a tendency to assume that when you use the word discipleship, you're talking about kind of basic training for new Christians. Kind of like spiritual boot camp for new recruits, right? You become a Christian, you need to learn just the fundamentals of how to live the Christian life, how to read the Bible and, and get, get something out of it, get something accurate out of it. How to pray, how do you pray and develop your own prayer life? Uh, how to confess your sin when, when you sin and receive God's forgiveness and walk in the Spirit. These fundamental aspects of the Christian faith. And often, uh, we talk about discipleship as, well, that's what you do with a new Christian. They need to now be discipled. That is, they need to learn the basics of the Christian faith. But you know, after you've been walking with Jesus for 10, 15, 20 years, you probably ought to be beyond that kind of stuff. And so whatever discipleship is, it probably doesn't really apply to people that have been Christians for a long time. Sometimes people use it in that term. Interestingly, the third thing I think discipleship isn't is precisely the opposite of this. There are a lot of Christians, if you listen to them long enough, who will use, in churches, who will use the word discipleship to talk about sort of advanced spiritual training for the elite few who are really ready for the hardcore stuff, you know? If you'll allow me to press the military analogy, this is like the, the high-level training for the spiritual special ops, you know, the Christian commando units. These are the, there we go. I got a special forces brother right over here. Thank you, Dave. These are the people that have been around like the church for a long time, right? They already know the basics. They've got that down, and they're ready to get into like lots of deep kind of theological minutiae. They're going to go tear apart all of the inner workings of the Old Testament and, and all the details and the cultural festivals and the details of the temple and all of this stuff and see that it's really important. They're going to deal in these classes and groups with the deep theological conundrums and philosophical issues. If God can do anything, can he make a rock that's so big that he can't lift it? Ooh. Come to our discipleship class Tuesday night. We're going to talk about that. 
You see, I mean, it's, and for most of us, well, okay, that's interesting, I guess, but like, seriously, is that going to get me out there on a Tuesday night? I mean, do I need that to walk with Jesus today? For most Christians in the church, it's like, that's, that's stuff for people, it's almost like the spiritual electives, you know? You can go there if you want. Everybody probably should at some point, and there's benefit to it, but most of us don't need that kind of stuff, if we were really being honest, on a daily basis to walk with Jesus. So it's interesting to see how we use this term. Uh, Let me just one last thing. Discipleship is not any one specific program or activity. This is just too important. I need to move on, but this is too important not to say, so let me just say it quickly and we'll move on. It is not any one particular program or activity that churches may um, employ in order to encourage discipleship. Discipleship is not an adult class on Wednesday night at Harvest Wednesdays, even though we have some of those coming up. Discipleship is not a community life group Bible study where we're getting in each other's lives and we're meeting in living rooms during the week and studying the Bible together, even though those are starting up and we believe in them strongly. Discipleship is not meeting one-on-one with somebody at a coffee shop and reading through a book together that talks about our spiritual lives, although that's a fantastic way to disciple people. Those are all great ways that you can pursue discipleship, but discipleship is not a program, it's a process. So if discipleship is not a separate partner to evangelism, It's not just spiritual basic training or spiritual advanced training, and it's not just a program. What is it? If you're in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus lays out for us a process that I would define this way. This is just my definition, so take this for what it's worth. You can agree with it, disagree with it, whatever. Um, It's not an academic definition. It's what I like to call a working definition. It's just a man on the street, sort of what is discipleship when you read the Bible so that we can actually use it and pursue it. Here's what I think the Bible gets at, and we'll see this here in just a second in the scriptures. Discipleship is the entire process of becoming a follower of Jesus, growing as a follower of Jesus, and helping other people do the same. When Jesus says, the main thing is to glorify my Father, and you glorify my Father by being a fruitful disciple, it's really important to know what a disciple is. Here's what I think he's talking about. Discipleship is the entire process of becoming a follower of Jesus, growing as a follower of Jesus, and then helping other people do the same. That's the main thing. Where did I come up with that? Lots of places, largely in Matthew 28. Let's look at that together. Many of us are familiar with this passage of Scripture. Bible scholars refer to it as the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus has already died. He's already risen from the dead. He's already hung out long enough for a few weeks for his disciples to realize he's really alive. And then he's about to leave. And he's saying, you guys are going to take it from here. I'm headed back to heaven. My work here is done. So what are the marching orders? Verse uh, 18 of Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am God incarnate. I'm issuing the orders. Here they are. Here's your job. Go, or as you are going through your life, make disciples of all nations. In in our language, that would be all ethnic groups, okay? All people groups. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. In Jesus' well-known final words in this great commission, 
he helps break this process of discipleship down a little bit. It's not very difficult, uh, and I'm hardly the first guy that's pointed this out, to discern three different stages or steps that he talks about. Uh, I'm not sure he intended them to be necessarily rigid steps, but he does sort of help us understand that there's a process. When we talk about growth or maturity, it's going somewhere, and he helps us see it right away uh, in the Great Commission. First of all, he says, make disciples, baptize, we'll come back to that, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a very clear reference to when a, first, a person first becomes a Christian. A person who is not a Christian becomes a Christian. That's the process of conversion. I've converted from unbelief to belief. I wasn't following Jesus. Now I am a disciple or follower of Jesus. The reason he talks about uh, baptizing them is that that is the consistent New Testament way that we signal to everybody else around us, from the church to the larger world, that I have moved from unbelief to belief. I have moved from living for myself to living for Jesus. Baptism is how that happens. As in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when Peter and the other apostles are preaching the gospel and several people come to them and say, what must we do to be saved? And he says in Acts chapter 2 verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You repent and you are baptized. If you have become a Christian, your first step of obedience in obeying your new Lord and Savior is you've got to put yourself on the track to getting baptized. We're going to have a baptism class coming up here uh, in October at some point. Check your bulletin for uh, dates on that. We talk about what baptism is, whether you were baptized once a long time ago or you don't understand what it means, that's the place for you to go. Understand baptism, and if you've given your life to Christ, you're baptized. This is the step of becoming a disciple. The Bible word for that is to repent. But he doesn't just go on and say, um, share the gospel, see people come to faith in Christ and baptize them and then you're done. He moves on and says, teach them to obey or to observe everything that I've commanded. All that I've commanded. Now think about that one for a minute. Those of you that have read, let, let's just stick with the Gospels. We won't even talk about the rest of the Bible right now. Let's just stick with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many of you have read those. You're familiar with them. How many commands of Jesus are in those four books? This is not a gotcha quiz. Just kind of generally. Like, are there a few? Are there like a bazillion? Answer, there's like a bazillion, <laughs> right? How many commands did Jesus issue? John Piper wrote a book several years ago called something like What Jesus Demands from the World, I think is the title of the book. And he tries to pull out and categorize in kind of his own way all the different commands of Jesus. And you could mix them and categorize them however you want, but you can't get around the fact that there are at least hundreds of things Jesus explicitly commands of his followers. And notice he does not just say, teach disciples my commands so that they learn them. He says, teach them to observe or obey my commands. Well, how many, Lord, do you have to observe and obey before I can at least say I'm a disciple? How many, church? All of them. Every single one. The ones I like and the ones that just get under my skin and drive me nuts. The ones that affirm my culture and my beliefs and the ones that fillet my culture and my beliefs. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. You follow me. So one of the ways you live that out is you learn all of my commands. Come to love 
all of my commands because if you don't love his commands, you will never follow his commands. And then live his commands to learn, to love, and to live. All of the commands of Jesus is the process of discipleship. It's a lifelong process. It never ends. But the results of this process are visible in a person's life over time. So we become a disciple, but then we also grow as a disciple, learning, loving, and living all of the commands of Jesus that touch on every area of life. That's the spiritual journey. And so because you have to be consistent and have alliterated R words, uh, I use the word renovate for this. Uh, Repent is in the Bible. Renovate is not, but I'm going with it, okay? Pick a different one if you don't like it. But in a word, that's this process of Jesus wanting to move in and completely change your life, to totally remodel everything from the ground up. Not just paint the walls, knock them down and build up whole new walls. <laughs> He's renovating my life. He's changing everything. So the process of discipleship is first to repent and then to renovate and grow. And then lastly, we go back to the beginning. The first direct command. He says, as you're going through life, he tells his disciples, make disciples of all peoples, all people groups, all ethnic backgrounds, not just your own, but all of them. Now, that's, I, I put that third in the process because there's a sort of an obvious logical flow here I think that makes it easier to follow. Jesus put number three first and then he did one and two and the reason for that is obvious because in the context he was talking to his disciples. They had already been through the repent phase with him and they had already done a whole lot of renovating with him. He had already taught them quite a bit and now he's telling them at the end, now to finish the process, you go make disciples and repeat what I've already done with you. You know how it's done because you've been through it. You've been through it. The ultimate end of the process of our spiritual growth isn't just personal transformation. It's not just about me and Jesus and what I am learning from Jesus and how I am experiencing God's love and what God is doing in my life. At some point in the process, the earlier the better, we eventually as Christians get our heads around the fact that this process isn't about me at all. It is about God pursuing his glory through me. And so there are other people to serve and there is a greater agenda than my own personal one to pursue. And the more we realize that and the more we learn to love that, the more we invest ourselves in it, which eventually works itself out in spending ourselves to help other people come to begin the same process. So much more could be said about this, but for the sake of time, that will suffice for this morning. There it is, in a nutshell. What is discipleship? It's the entire process of becoming a a follower of Jesus, growing as a follower of Jesus, and helping others do the same. Or, in three simple words, repent, renovate, and reproduce. That's God's will for your life. That's why you're here. That's why this church exists. That's the main thing. That's the main thing. Often, Bible teachers um, identify these three shifts and and try to break it down into stages, the four stages around them which can be pretty useful. I start as somebody who's not a Christian. And once I repent, I become a disciple. I'm a new Christian. I'm a young Christian. There's my first step. So I've moved from somebody who's not a believer to a place where I am a Christian. Then I go through this renovation process, which is a lifelong, ongoing 
process. Again, these really aren't sort of like rigid stages as much as they're kind of major milestones on a continuum of learning to love and follow Jesus. And, and as I continue to allow, by the grace of God, the Spirit of God to renovate my life, I learn Christ, I love Christ, and I live Christ more and more. It begins to change my life, and over time, I'm never really done with that process, but over time, I move on to a place of greater spiritual maturity. I am now a, what you might call a maturing Christian, or, or what some people call the, the worker, meaning they've They've started to realize that, that the Christian life isn't just about me. There's a task to be done, and they're actually investing in it with joy. And yet the process isn't complete until I'm intentionally uh, investing of myself and sacrificing so that others become part of his process as well. And I begin to reproduce by identifying and pouring my life into other people so that they might learn Christ from me as I have learned Christ from others. Only at this point has discipleship realized its full potential and reached its intended outcome. I believe this is exactly what Jesus meant in John 15 when he said, you glorify my Father by being fruitful disciples. The whole process is taking place in your life and you can see it. There's fruit, to use that uh, an agricultural analogy, Uh, there's fruit, there's an end result, and the fruit is God transforming my life, but also through me, transforming other people's lives. That's his calling on my life. It's his calling on your life. That's the main thing. And we're going to talk even a little bit more specifically about some ways that we really want to continue to develop even more of a culture of this at Harvest, um, moving into next Sunday as we close out the sermon series. For the remainder of our time, what I want to do here today, before we go there, is talk about the second part of this. If, if this is the process, there's a danger involved in the process, and it's the process of getting waylaid along the journey somewhere or stuck wherever I'm at. How do we get stuck? How do we get unstuck? Let's talk about that in the few minutes that we have left together. Hebrews chapter 5, that we also had read to us earlier, is addressed to a group of Christians who you might say, according to this kind of... Um, scheme, this way of looking at it, were kind of in that second stage. They, they had repented. They had become Christians. They believed in Jesus. They were eternally saved. But they never really grew beyond it. And in Hebrews chapter 5, we see the author of this letter of Hebrews berating them for that fact, kind of taking them to task in pretty clear terms of saying, you guys are stuck, and that's a problem. You need to get yourselves unstuck Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 he says I want to go on and explain something to you but it's hard because you have become dull of hearing now you start to get the idea right there he's saying boy there was once a time where where you group of Christians was so excited to learn any new thing you could about Jesus but now you've kind of gotten really content with what you know and you're not that interested in learning much more So here I am, I want to go on and explain something that's got a little bit more depth to it from the Old Testament. In the context, he's talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek and how that relates to Jesus, which is really cool. And the people are like, priesthood of Mel who? Whatever. Uh, Can we just move on? Like, I don't care. I'm dull of hearing. I don't want to hear it anymore. And he's saying to them, as a Christian, if that's where you're at, that's a problem. That's a problem. He goes on and kind of diagnoses them a little bit more. He elaborates on his assessment of their spiritual condition. He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You still need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the teachings of God. And then he shifts to a 
uh, an analogy of, of, of young infants. He says, you still need milk to feed on, like a mother's milk, instead of solid food. We all know that by the time a baby grows, eventually they need to get off of mother's milk and eat solid food, and that's a good thing. That's a sign of maturity when their body and their digestive systems are mature enough to handle solid food, which is what they were made for, but they can't really have it right away. They're just not at that place of development yet. And so you want to see the process of a healthy baby growing to where they move from milk to solid food. And he says to them, that's the problem. He says, that's what you guys are like. You're like little baby Christians. Sometimes you may have heard that phrase, baby Christian, and it comes from passages of the Bible like this. That's a biblical analogy. It's like your little infants, except you didn't grow into the peas and the carrots and the bananas (laughs) and and, and then move on to meats and and other things. You haven't done that yet, and you should be there by now. And if you were to see a child who is several years old, still unable to eat solid food, red flags, you don't even have to be a doctor to understand something's wrong. The same thing is true spiritually. He says, you need somebody to go back and remind you of the fundamental basics of the gospel. Salvation by grace, not by works. He's like, you guys have been Christians for, we don't know exactly how long, probably years at this point in the context of this letter. Like, that should be old news to you. You should have that down so well that you're teaching that to other people who have never heard the gospel. But you're still living this works-based salvation like you don't understand the doctrines of grace in the first place. That's like lesson number one in Christianity. And you've got to have somebody go teach you again. This is a problem. Solid food, he said, is for the mature. And so down in chapter 6, verse 3, uh, at the end of verse 2, he says, let us move on to maturity, and this we will do, if God permits. By God's grace, we will move, move, move on to maturity. What's he saying? He's saying that this is a group of people who got stuck at what we might call that second new, new believer face. And according to the Bible, that's a big problem. It's great that we moved that far, but God intends for the process of discipleship to carry all the way through. And and this is a great illustration of the fact that you can get stuck at any point along the way in this journey. It's very easy to come to the place where rather than uh, moving on from being an unbeliever even to a Christian, you can get stuck as somebody who does not know Jesus. Now that may be initially a weird thing to think about. You're like, well, I'm not even a disciple yet, so in what sense could I be stuck? Well, according to God, you are called to be a disciple, You're made to be a disciple, and the first step is to repent of your sin and your living for yourself and to follow Jesus. It's the first step is to become a Christian. But often, people who are not Christians begin to ask questions. Maybe there's reasons they're not a Christian. There's there's issues of of, of, of theology or, or philosophy or just something else, personal experience that they can't get past. I can't trust in this Jesus. I can't become a Christian because of this, this, and this. I've got questions about all these things, which is fabulous, by the way. That's fantastic. If you're here this morning and you're not a committed follower of Jesus and you have questions in your mind, don't let them sit in the back of your mind. Bring them to the front. Put them on the table. Ask them. Myself, any of our pastoral staff, your Christian friends, we'd love to talk with you about those things. We don't even always have all the answers, but asking the questions and going and finding the answers together is a wonderful pursuit. And many honest, intentional uh, people who are not Christians really seek answers. I would like to believe in God, but I just can't get over this thing. Okay, well then let's talk about this thing. That's a really good process. However, there is a subjective and difficult to nail down from the outside point at which sometimes my questions as a non-Christian are now serving as a convenient excuse 
for me to not become a Christian. Oh, sure, there may be questions. Friends, I've been a Christian for 43 years. I still have questions about the Bible. (laughs) We're always going to have questions and things we don't understand about God because he's infinite and we're finite, so the questions are okay. But at some point, when my questions become an excuse to say, I just really don't want to bow my knee to the sovereign of the universe, and I'm going to use this philosophical problem over here as an excuse for the fact that I don't want to bow to Jesus. If that's you, you may be stuck. You may be stuck. The Bible's call in your life is very clear. It's repent. Repent of the sin that is holding you back and become a follower of Christ. But you know what? If you do that, you can be just like these Christians in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. We're great. You've done that. You've become a Christian. You've embraced Christ. You know you're part of his family. You know you're going to heaven when you die, and it's not yours. Uh, It's his credit for that. Great. And then you stall out there. And then you stall out there. Like the original readers of Hebrews, many people become Christians and rejoice in their salvation. They rejoice in being part of God's family. They start to learn the fundamentals of the faith, although applying them sometimes sputters. Attending church is important, so we come when the schedule isn't super busy. You know, there's certain seasons I'm just not available. We um, understand that reading the Bible is important. It's also hard, have you noticed? And it's a lot easier to just kind of maybe read a devotional book or listen to a preacher you like on Christian radio, or download the church's latest podcast, and listen to what other pastors or preachers or authors have learned from the Bible, and just sort of glean from their insights, because that takes a lot less effort. My own personal Bible reading? Well, maybe not so much. We've learned how to pray, but we really only do it when we're desperate. You know, all these kinds of things. It, it, these may be signs, not necessarily always, but these may be signs that I'm kind of stuck, I'm stalled out on my spiritual journey, like these young believers that the book of Hebrews was addressed to. And I can stay there for years. Friends, you can stay there for decades, never growing beyond these fundamentals. And most churches have lots and lots of these people in their pews. Where are you at in the process? You can move beyond that, though, and continue this renovation process. You become a maturing believer, but you know it's possible to to stall out there as well. Let me take you back to the conversation we started with this morning that I had with my friend. Uh, at lunch not long ago. There's also tons and tons of these people in churches. Um, These are folks who have walked with Jesus for years, and it actually shows in their life. I mean, like you can tell. Uh, It shows in their relative freedom from egregious sins. It shows in the habitual nature of the spiritual disciplines in their life, you know, avoiding sin, loving their husbands and wives, reading the Bible, praying. These are all just normal parts of their life. And you can tell that their thinking is influenced by Scripture and their life is really pursuing Jesus. And you go, wow, this is somebody who's like really taking their faith seriously. And you're right. You're right. And it also shows in the, the ready willingness with which they show up and participate in church life beyond Sunday mornings. These are often, not always, but often the people who are teaching children's ministry classes. They're signing up for and joining small groups. They're volunteering. They're serving. They're coming on Wednesday nights because they see value in all of these things. But even with all of that, sometimes a closer look under the hood reveals that my time and my energy are spent almost exclusively on my life, my family, and the people I care the most about. And a closer look under the hood would also reveal a fairly limited willingness to increase their giving, their serving, their relationship building, their prayer, their Bible reading past their current levels of habit. It's just hard to press through and do more 
because quite possibly I'm now stuck. I'm just sort of stalled out. Either a sin has got me stuck or I've just become content with what I've got or the distractions of the world have sapped my energy and I'm pursuing other things. There can be a lot of reasons. But regardless, we can be stuck and not move on to the place where we are actively engaged in our Lord's call to make more disciples. Do you see yourself anywhere in this process? I have to tell you, I see myself all over it. I see myself all over it. This is the call of God on our lives to be involved in this process. How do you get unstuck? So much could be said here. With the time we have, let me just share three things. Let me at least invite you into the rest of this conversation and tell you the three things I shared with my friend. It's not all that could have been said, and some of it may not apply to you or may apply differently. That'll be up to you. But we want to end this on a practical note. If I'm, if I'm a Christian, if I'm interested in following Jesus, and if I can look at this and say, you know, I think this is kind of where I'm at, I guess. I think I may be stuck. I don't know. Or maybe I definitely do know. What do I do? Because if I'm not stuck now, I probably will be someday. What do you even do? At least three suggestions. First, I mentioned before that, that my friend didn't really need me to, to explain anything to him that he didn't already understand. He understood it. He didn't need me to convince him of anything. He was already convinced. And so he just kind of shrugged. He said, you have any thoughts? I said, yeah. Um, he said, okay, I'm all ears. I said, okay. <laughs> um, first thought, you need to repent of your sin. You still all ears? <laughs> <laughs> to his credit, he kind of went, oh, okay, I'm willing to listen. What do you think? I said, y- you, you described to me how, how you know what you need to do to pursue Jesus, and, and you're just not doing it. And, and you kept using words like, you know, I know I should do that, but I'm just lazy, I guess. You know, I know I, if, if I carved out more time, like in the mornings, that would be my ideal time. Family evening doesn't work that well. Mornings, I could actually spend more time with Jesus, but I've tried that before, and I guess I'm just not a morning person. You know, he would say things like that. And I said, yeah, I say those things too, all the time. And let's call them what they are. They're excuses. They're rationalizations. And what's worse is they may be covers for sin. They may be covers for sin. I said, let's look at this. Let's just go with the morning thing. So many of us can relate to that. If I know that in the morning I could get up 30 minutes earlier and spend great time with Jesus, well, maybe 40 minutes earlier to get the coffee going, and then 30 minutes to spend great time with Jesus. You know, whatever it takes, that's okay. Um, but I consistently find myself not doing it. Oh my goodness, when I'm there in the bed, the pillow, it's so soft. The bed is so warm. I was out so late, you know, on and on and on. And I just, oh, I get up and maybe I force myself to do it, but I'm so bleary-eyed to get nothing out of it. And after a couple of days, you just get discouraged and you give up. And I say, I'm not a morning person. Which is a way of saying what? It's a way of saying, I have no control over this. I'm trapped by forces beyond my control. I simply can't. I said, let's look at it another way. What if that alarm goes off Sunday morning and the truth is I am choosing 30 minutes of sleep more than 30 minutes with Jesus in the Bible because at that moment my pillow is more beautiful to me than my Christ. That puts a different spin on it. But you see, we will do what we desperately want to do. It's human nature. And that's why earlier when we talked about uh, teaching people to obey all of Christ's commands, we talked about learning his commands, but also loving his commands so that we then live his commands. You see, the problem in that moment is not that I'm a morning person. That may be true, by the way. I don't deny that that's true for a lot of people. 
uh, that I'm not a morning person. But that's not really the essence of my problem. The real essence of my problem is that that moment, Jesus is not beautiful enough to me to get up out of my bed and spend time with him. And I have been that guy many a time. And by the way, when I value something more than I value Jesus, that's sin. The Bible calls it idolatry. It's loving and pursuing something or someone more than Christ himself. Oh, the excuses we all make. I'm lazy. I'm busy. I'm not a reader. I'm not a people person. I'm not a morning person or a night person. I'm not a financially secure person. I'm not yet a career established person. Whatever. So many excuses can come to our lips. And they've all got grains of truth to them and elements of truth to them. But if you're stuck, watch out for when your excuses become a cover for sin. What's the hard issue? that is holding you back from pursuing Jesus when you know there's a step you need to take. Well, when you know what that sin is, we know what to do with sin, right? There's no mystery there for the Bible-believing Christian. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just not only to forgive us of that sin, but to cleanse us, the Bible says, from all unrighteousness, even the unrighteousness of loving my pillow more than I love my Christ. He can cleanse me of that. Do I believe him? Do I give him the opportunity? Confess your sin. Secondly, if you're stuck, get into community. Get into community. Anytime we do things together, we do them better and for longer than we usually do them alone. One of my favorite African proverbs that I do know came from Africa, I just don't know where, I've shared with you before, goes like this. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It's a good word. I work out alone. I do okay. If I have a workout buddy, I do much better, right? I mean, it's just, it's kind of life, doing things together. I said, find somebody in this church who wants to pursue Jesus in the word the way you do, and don't try to do this on your own. It's too hard. We get isolated, and we just try to keep the fire going ourselves. It doesn't work. He immediately said, I know a guy, and he told me who he was thinking about, and I went, that's crazy, because that's the exact guy I was going to suggest to you. You've already, he's like, oh, it's better. I haven't even thought about him. I've already talked to him about this. Great. Oh, yeah, he's already said he'll get together with me. Fabulous. Then what's the problem? Well, I've just never called him. So what's number one list on your... Oh, well, number two, you're going to confess and repent, whatever. Okay, number, number two, you're going to... I'm going to call him. <laughs> get together. Do it together. Man, I've <clears throat> pulled together a, a group of guys for the last couple of summers, just a small handful of us. I said, if you really want to pursue discipleship, like, let's do this. And they're all like, yeah, when can we do it? Well, Saturday morning at 7 in the summer. Are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> We've done it for a couple of years. Um, I'm going to start meeting with them again pretty soon. I've got to admit, getting up in time to be somewhere at 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning, especially in the summer, but even during the fall, not my favorite thing to do. Uh, I basically get one opportunity to sleep, eh, maybe two, but my most consistent opportunity to sleep in is like on the weekends, right? Probably true for most of us. To give that up, there's an element of like, oh, that's right, I gotta get up tomorrow because I told these guys and I'm the one that called the meeting. What was I thinking? <laughs> but you know what? To a man, we have done this together and every guy gets to the end of, you know, we'll meet for a while and then we stop meeting for a while before we start it up again. We always get to the end and we're like, hey, let's, let's evaluate this and every guy's like, this was so good for me. Just being with other guys who want to pursue Jesus. It's the same thing with our community life group. We just started meeting last week. We'll meet again tonight. So good to be back together. We didn't see each other much over the summer. 
And we didn't meet as a whole group at all over the summer. We just kind of informally connected. So good to be back together again, laughing, catching up, talking about God's word. You're like, yeah, I'm not in this alone. Get into community. And lastly, um, last thing I encouraged him to do was finish the process by pouring yourself out. Finish the process by pouring yourself out. I suggested to him that he should find somebody else that he could pour into. I said, you've been walking with Jesus long enough You've already got this heart to pursue him more. I wish more people even had that heart. You've already learned. There's so much you have. I guess I just don't think about me having anything. It's not about us. We all think that false humility thing. It's a lie from the pit of hell that Satan uses to keep us stuck and on the sidelines. Jesus said, go make disciples. There are so many people that have what you have to offer. Maybe you pray about and pursue who you could meet with, who you could help come along more, who you could teach to read the Bible the way that you love it to the extent that you do. Nothing will light the fire under your spiritual journey like having someone ask you a question you don't know the answer to. It's great. (laughs) It's like, I have no idea. Let's talk about this. And all the answers I thought I had start sounding stupid when I explain them. And suddenly I realize, whoa, I got to go study. Hey, there's your motivation. The late Howard Hendricks used to call that the law of need. You never learn until you really feel the need to. You never have a need to learn until you're pouring into other people. That's the whole process of discipleship. So who are my disciples? We're going to talk about this last one more next week, so for now we need to wrap up. Where have we been today? We've covered a lot of ground. Let's pull back. Discipleship is the process of becoming a follower of Jesus, growing as a follower of Jesus, helping others do the same, to repent, to renovate, reproduce. That's God's call on your life. It's your purpose. It's your reason for existing, not having a family, not pursuing a career, not getting to retirement, none of that. More than a man or a woman, a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad, an accountant, an engineer, a teacher, a cop, a pastor, a student, you're a disciple if you're a Christian. And all of those things just become the arenas in which we work out our pursuit of Christ and help other people do the same. The danger is getting stuck and waylaid along the path. So let's get unstuck by confessing sin connecting with others honestly and pouring ourselves into the lives of others. We're saying all of this because that's who we want to be at Harvest. By God's grace, he's brought us to a place of being a church that's really pretty healthy. That a lot of the things that could plague us don't, and that's his work in our midst, and we're grateful for that, but we don't want to settle and say, yay, we're a healthy church. Health is a means to an end. It's not the end. The end is that more disciples would be produced. And more disciples are produced not just when the pastor preaches great sermons or elders make great decisions or staff people run great programs. Disciples are produced when the members of the church are engaged in the process with one another. By his grace, this year, may we see unparalleled spiritual growth in our own lives and unparalleled numbers of people repenting and joining our family and receiving eternal life. That's our mission. That's what we want to be focused on. We want to invite you in the journey. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for being so clear with your call in our lives. And I'm sure if we're honest, there isn't a one of us in this room who couldn't identify potentially multiple ways in which we don't live up to your calling. Um, Laying out the process like this is so helpful because it's clarifying, but it can also feel overwhelming because we realize how clear we're not most of the time. We realize how far short we fall most of the time. Father, I want to lead the way as a man who regularly fails to live up to the full calling I just described and pray that you would 
allow me to understand my sin correctly and be willing to confess it. That you would give me the heart to press deeper into community and into building relationships so that I can be encouraged by and encourage others. And God, would you give me the heart to love you enough to lay down whatever I have to lay down to reach out and make other disciples. And I pray that you would do that work multiplied hundreds of times in the members of this church so that we would fulfill your purposes for us and that people would not look at us and say that's the coolest building or the neatest pastor or the greatest program, but people would look and say there, the word of God is preached and disciples are made. Jesus, would you be glorified in our midst? And we want to praise you now in song and in response with our lives. In your name and for your glory, amen.